Again, welcome to everyone, especially our guests. If you are indeed visiting with us and you need a Bible, you will find one. Hopefully you will find one under the chairs. They are scattered throughout the auditorium. Again, if you are visiting with us and you like sermon notes, you will find an outline in the worship guide, which you would have received on the way in. You open that and you will find a page entitled Sermon Night Notes, and that, hopefully, I pray, will uh, keep you on track. Good to see everyone here. It has been a busy week. That's probably an understatement. Lots going on here at Grace Community Church. Uh, if you were anywhere near the Sunday School wing, you will have noticed the new paint and the new carpet. Uh, that's great. That's fantastic. What you probably don't know is the carpet wasn't done until Friday afternoon at 3. And then there were some in here running all over the place, trying to get everything back in the classrooms. And so I want to give a special thanks to those who helped, especially Rick. He went above and beyond the call of duty. Joel, I saw him out there sweating and grunting as well. Uh, Paula was there. Logan and they pulled in Elijah for all the heavy lifting. That was Elijah Satterfield. He's only about that tall, so in case you don't get that. And so a special thanks to all of them, a thanks to all the Sunday school teachers who uh, did a lot this last week as well to get those rooms ready and get their lessons prepared for the start of Sunday school this day. Also, on top of all of that, the conference. Oh, a special thanks to so many. I'm afraid to begin, but I'm going to begin because I'll undoubtedly miss some. But I want to begin with J Squared. Perhaps you've never met him. Have you met J Squared? That's Jonathan Tomes and Jonathan Martinez. I think Ike gave them that name. I think Ike came up with that. J Squared, thank them for all the time and effort they put into making that conference uh, a reality. Joel and Jane, who helped with the kids... What more can we say? If we were handing out trophies, they would get a trophy, blue ribbons. Claudia, Carmen, Haas, and many others who helped with the refreshments. I think I saw Andre back there as well. Thanks, Andre. And all who assisted with the sound, the music, the registration, the greeting. So many volunteers. We are so thankful. And I was encouraged by the conference. You know one of the things I was encouraged by? I met three or four. Well, I met a lot of people who I hadn't met before but three or four in particular who come from churches where they're not being taught. They're not being taught. They have no other choice. Towns they live in, towns of 40,000, 50,000, they cannot find a church that teaches the word. But they are familiar with the Alliance. They're on the mailing list, heard of this conference, and they came. And what a delight they share with me. What a delight it was for them to be with other believers under the sound of God's word, and back they go encouraged and strengthened in the Lord. And so that's just one example. I've had email last night from people outside the church just again thanking us. Great feedback from Josh Moody and from Mark Jones just commenting on the family atmosphere and just how they enjoyed being here and were encouraged by interacting with you. And I'm thankful for that, to get that kind of feedback from them. So again, many thanks to all who made it possible. A busy week indeed, and here we are. Some of you will be sick of my voice. You heard me twice yesterday, you heard me this morning, 
You're going to hear me again now. Here we go. Romans chapter 3. Turn with me, please. Verses 9 through 20. The bad news begins in chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul begins, he starts out on this long journey, chapter 1, verse 18, in which he describes, no, let me state it in different terms, in which he paints uh, this portrait of the darkness of our sin. It is, I can't pretend otherwise, it is disturbing and discouraging, but at the same time, it is enlightening and encouraging. Why? The unmasked horror of our sin highlights the matchless beauty of God's grace. The utter darkness of our sin accentuates the sheer brilliance of God's grace. The unfathomable depth of our sin magnifies the immeasurable height of God's grace. And so, yes, we cannot deny it. Disturbing and discouraging, while at the same time enlightening and encouraging. Here's something for you. There is a glimmer of light ahead. It's verse 21 of chapter 3. We're almost there. We, we started on this dark journey back in chapter 1, verse 18. But if you can just look ahead to verse 21, there you can almost make out this faint glimmer of light. But here's what I must tell you. Here's what I must warn you. It gets worse before it gets better. Chapter 3, verse 9, follow along as I read. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And now here he rhymes off a series of Old Testament texts. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, we know, those of us who have been here from the beginning of this series, we know we are standing in a court of law. I hope you're convinced of that by now. If you're not convinced, just turn to a series of verses with me. Begin back in chapter 1, verse 20, and look at the very last phrase Paul uses there. So they 
are without excuse. Look now at chapter 2, verse 1, the very first statement. Therefore, you have no excuse. Same chapter, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Same chapter, verse 11. Very first phrase, only phrase, for God shows no partiality when it comes to judgment. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Into chapter 3, a verse we just read, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And lastly, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That is just a sampling. A sampling of the legal ease that Paul uses in this section, the opening chapters of this epistle. He is thinking in terms of a judicial court. And in this court of law, there is only one judge, the Lord God Almighty. In this court of law, the Apostle Paul is assuming the role of prosecuting attorney. And in this court of law, the accused stands there, or rather sits there, and the accusation is simply this, that all people, humanity, suppress the truth. They suppress the truth, reject the truth, distort the truth because of their unrighteousness. When Paul has in view humanity, he is thinking of Jews and Gentiles. He is thinking of those who have the word of God and those who don't have the word of God. And so he proves as he unfolds his court case, he brings evidence and he calls two witnesses. And so he calls a witness to take the stand to testify against the Gentiles, those who don't have the Bible. And he calls a witness, creation. And he demonstrates that the Gentiles have rejected what God reveals through creation. He demonstrates that the Gentiles suppress the truth because they willingly ignore God's self-revelation given in the cosmos. And then Paul turns his attention to the Jews, those who do have the Bible. And he demonstrates that they too are guilty of suppressing the truth. Not that they have rejected what God reveals through creation, but they have taken and they have distorted, they have twisted, they have make, made an unbelievable mess of that special revelation, the oracles of God, the scriptures, the very word that was entrusted to them. And so he is Proving his charge that humanity stands guilty in the sight of God. Everyone. Guilty. Why? Because they willingly, knowingly, consciously suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. Those who don't have the Bible, they do that by rejecting general revelation. Those who do have the Bible, they do that by rejecting special revelation. And now in our text, he brings it all to a head, a culmination. And using our imagination, it is as if the judge himself stands up now and passes sentence. And the voice of the Lord comes rushing 
like a torrent from the past. Old Testament scripture, and Paul cites it and is rhyming off these Old Testament texts one after another to prove all are under sin. Therefore, all are guilty. Or as it is stated, very first statement or Old Testament quotation in verse 10, none, none is righteous. No, not one. Paul is tenacious. He will not let go. And now he furnishes pieces of evidence, more evidence, that we indeed are under sin and none are righteous in God's sight. Six pieces of evidence. Firstly, the fact that we are under sin is seen in what we think. Verse 11, first statement, no one understands. No one understands. At the conclusion of this meeting, I assume it's a sunny day still out there, we were to head into the parking lot, and we were to gaze up at the noonday, noonday sun, open eyes, peering, gazing upon that sun, mere seconds, right? Before the eyes begin to water and we are forced to turn away. You take a blind man out into the noonday sun and point his eyes in the direction of the sun and he can stand there all day long tomorrow and the day after and it has absolutely no effect. That is what Paul is saying. That is his point in the realm of the spiritual. Because we are under sin, no one understands when it comes to who God is, spiritual truths, eternal realities. It's seen secondly in what we want. Look at the second statement in verse 11. No one seeks for God. We hear that phrase a lot. I've heard it I don't know how many times over the years, and I still hear it today. People speaking of those who are seeking the Lord. People even like to describe themselves in those terms. Well, I'm a seeker. I'm looking. I'm on a journey. I'm investigating. I need to be very careful. I need to be very careful because I know at times I can get Maybe guilty of being a little sarcastic or a little too harsh, but but I do want to make the point and make it make it make it forcefully. No, you're not. You're not. There is no such thing as a seeker. There is no such thing as an investigator. There is no such thing as someone who is on a journey just trying to make their way to God. No one seeks for God. People are looking for happiness. People are looking for meaning. People are looking for religion. And I guess, I guess we can say in a way, in a sense, they are looking for God. The problem is this. They are not seeking the God of Scripture. They are seeking a figment of their imagination. A God that they have formed and fashioned in their own image. A God with whom they are comfortable. Yes, they might very well be seeking that God. But the God of Scripture... 
No one is looking for him. No one is making, feeling their way toward him. No one is investigating with an objective mind and viewpoint while I'm trying to find my way to God and reason my way there. No one seeks for God. Why not? Here it is in a sentence. Sinful, self-centeredness controls all our seeking. Let me repeat it. Sinful, self-centeredness controls all our seeking. Meaning what? Self-love masters and motivates our so-called seeking. No one seeks for God. It's evident, thirdly, in what we choose. Brings us into the realm of verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Worthless, the idea of spoiled, rotten fruit. You have that apple at home that's been sitting on the counter for three weeks. I don't know why. Throw it out already. The thing is, rotten. It no longer serves any purpose. It no longer serves any function. It is now spoiled. It is worthless. It is useless. It's going in the bin. It's going in the garbage. That's Paul's point there. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. As a result, what? Look at the rest of verse 12. No one does good, not even one. There was an incident a couple of years ago in a place called, was it Borga, Borja, Spain, of an elderly woman who walked into her local church. I think it was a Roman Catholic church, cathedral, something like that. And there were various paintings on the walls, and she noticed one painting in particular caught her attention, Ec homo, behold the man, from the Latin, the Vulgate text, Ec homo, a painting, a rendering of the Lord Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate, painted centuries ago. She thought it looked a little faded. So you know what she did? She took it upon herself to remove the painting from the wall, take it home, and attempt a restoration. And then she put it back. You should see the thing. One art critic described it as a bloated hedgehog. She completely defaced and ruined the painting. My friends, that is you and me. We were created in the image of God. Guess what? It's ruined. Bloated hedgehog. Stick with that if you like it. You get the idea. It is ruined. The image is marred. We have turned aside. As a result, we have become worthless, spoiled fruit. Therefore, even those things we do which are good, and we do good things, that is, things which are for the benefit of others, for the good of society. Even those things we do, which we might classify as good, are tainted by sin in God's sight and therefore are unacceptable to God. That is what Paul means when he says, no one does good. That means no one does anything that is good by God's standard. Nobody does anything that is good by God's estimation, not even one. The fact that we are under sin is seen, fourthly, in what we say. Verses 13 and 14. Let me just pause and remind you. I warned you. It was going to get worse before it got better. All right? In what we say, verses 13 and 14, their throat. Notice four terms he uses. Their throat. There's number one. Throat is an open grave. Here comes number two. They use their tongues to deceive. 
The venom of asps, here is number three, is under their lips. Into verse 14, we'll find number four, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Fourfold description, throats, tongues, lips, mouths. I think he's making a point. He's referring obviously to what? Words. Those things that come out of our mouths. Those things which escape our lips, as the Lord Jesus himself warned, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth simply reveals what's going on inside. It might not even be in the words, the exact words themselves that are used, but the attitude in which they are spoken the motive for which they are spoken. James warns, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. How gr- That's a powerful mental picture, isn't it? How great a blaze is set aflame by what? Such a small spark. And so you think of some of the forest fires that rage in this country and what causes them. A piece of glass magnified by the sun, a carelessly discarded cigarette, a campfire that isn't completely stamped out in the embers, perhaps the wind catches a spark, something that is so seemingly, seemingly insignificant, something that, it, that, that, that in and of themselves, things which are, are power, powerless, pointless, of no relevance, but things which can lead to an enormous forest fire, destroying hectares and hectares of land, destroying homes, perhaps even destroying human life. James uses that as a comparison for the tongue. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, such a small spark, the tongue. It quickly descends into malice. Deceit, gossip, bitterness, backbiting, murmuring. It quickly wreaks havoc and creates chaos. It harasses, belittles, and demolishes. It takes no prisoners. It spares no one, no matter how innocent. It destroys reputations. It destroys friendships. It destroys families, it destroys ministries, it destroys churches. The tongue is the most destructive thing walking the face of the earth. The tongue. Oh, the victims that have been left in its wake. We see that we are under sin in what we say. Fifthly, we see the evidence that we are under sin, that none is righteous, no, not one, in what we do. And so he leaves behind throats, tongues, lips, and mouths. And look at what he says now in verses 15 through 17. He moves on to feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. We could come at this from many angles, friends. I mean, let's come at it just for a moment historically. Historically. The history of humanity is not a history of peace, right? It it, it isn't a written account of how peaceful people have gotten along. You walk into the chapters or any bookstore, chapters back in Canada, oops, what's what's the big one here? 
You walk into any bookstore and you go to that shelf, human, you know, history, any books on history, it's all about what? War. Wars and conflicts and revolutions and all of these things, on and on and on it goes. We see the proof of these verses if we just be good historians and just take a quick survey of our past. We get, if we, we can come at it from a second angle, if we simply turn on the news. I'm not suggesting you do, but if you do, you turn on the news and we see the proof. Terrible. We look at some of the things that are going on in the world, and we look at some of the conflicts, and we, we look, I, I think this is what is most disturbing. You look at how uh, the sanctity of human life is so, it, it is held so flippantly, casually, carelessly, we, we see it to the, to the extent of the practice of abortion in our own country. We, we, we see that this bloodshed through the centuries as we look back. We see it in the present as we look around us. And here is what's most disturbing. We see it as we look at ourselves. One commentator penned, expressed it as follows. This is how sin, commenting on these verses, this is how sin affects our relationships. We are after each other's blood. Sometimes literally, more often, in simply seeking to push down those who get in our way. Why do we become angry with people? There is no other explanation. It is because they have blocked us from access to an idol. They have compromised our comfort. They have prevented our promotion, or they have challenged our control. But we see it in our own lives, in our own hearts. And sixthly, we see the evidence that there is none righteous, no, not one, in what we fear. Did you get the six? It's not, not very complicated. Number one, again, is in what we think. Number two, in what we want. Number three, in what we choose. Number four in what we say, number five in what we do, and now bringing it all to a conclusion in what we fear, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's reminiscent. Just turn back a page or two. It is reminiscent of what Paul stated back at the end of chapter one. I'm thinking specifically of verse 32, just by way of reminder. Look at what he writes there. Though they know. So it's not something they're confused over. It's not something that escapes their notice. They know what? God's decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think Paul's saying essentially the same thing here in chapter 3, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There you have it. You have God himself passing sentence. Paul brought the charge. He brought the charge. Everyone suppresses the truth by their unrighteousness. 
He has proved it. He has demonstrated it by calling his two witnesses. He has repeated the charge in verse 9 that all are under sin, whether they be Jews, those who have the scriptures, or Gentiles, those who don't have the scriptures. It doesn't matter. They are all guilty of suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. And this is seen if we just care to stop and take a look. This is objective. It is verifiable. The empirical evidence is all around us if we open our eyes. It is seen in what we think. It is seen in what we want, what we choose, what we say, what we do, and in what we fear. The implications for us, I want to emphasize five or six. Here's number one. Paul's statements, these Old Testament texts, this section, this chunk here, really verses 10 through 18, it shows us just how sinful we are. We cannot run and hide. We need to come to grips with this. It shows us just how sinful we are. Again, I appeal to the ninth verse. We have already charged that all, it doesn't matter who you are, all are under sin. We call this in theological terms the doctrine of total depravity, or as some like to describe it, the doctrine of radical depravity. What does that mean? It doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. It does not mean we are as bad as we could be. Did you get that? It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean that some of us still don't do good things and refrain from doing horrendous things like genocide or something like that. The point is this, the doctrine of total depravity is this, that no matter what we do, good or bad, in the eyes of man, it is unacceptable in God's sight because all that we do is tainted by sin. Did you get that? Let's use our imaginations. We're standing on the eastern seaboard. South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, simply because I can picture it in my mind because we used to go there when I was much younger. There we are, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Three men decide they're going to jump in the Atlantic and swim to Portugal. Don't ask why, just stay with me. They're going to jump. Oh, why? Because someone has offered a million dollars prize money. That's great. Million dollars prize money if someone will swim from South Carolina to Portugal. Three men jump in the water. One makes it 10 miles, gives up. One makes it 25 miles, gives up. The third makes it 50 miles, gives up. Is anybody getting the million dollars? It's 4,000 miles across the Atlantic from South Carolina to Portugal. Is anybody getting the prize money? Even though one managed to swim 50 miles, five times more than the first guy who gave, what a wimp, gave up after 10 miles, even though he swam five times farther, is he getting the prize money? Is there any point in talking in terms of success? Is there any point in talking in terms of triumph or victory or reward? Even though there is a distinction between the three, 10, 25, 50, does it make any difference? Does it matter? You see where I'm going with this? No. That is a doctrine of radical depravity. That although we are not as bad as we could be, whatever it is we do, 
Wherever we are at in life, we must come to terms with this, the stark reality that all have turned aside from God. Therefore, no one does good. Why? Because God does not weigh the form. He weighs the motive. And there is an absence of fear, an absence of love in our hearts. Therefore, even the good we do is deemed unacceptable in the sight of God. Second lesson is this. It shows us just how guilty we are. Look at the 19th verse. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, here's the purpose, it's it's legalese, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world, may be held accountable to God. And so you picture that court scene. You picture that felon, that individual who's brought before the court. He's found guilty. He starts yelling and starts objecting and kicking and screaming as he's dragged out of the courtroom. That's not what happens in God's courtroom. What happens in God's courtroom is simply this. There is deafening silence. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. There are no objections. There are no counter-arguments. There is no coming back. Every mouth is stopped, silenced, plugged, muzzled, and the whole world is held accountable to God. We see just how guilty we are. That word guilty, somewhat confusing. It is confusing because we are emotionally driven. We are a generation driven, consumed with our feelings, whereby we define things by our feelings. We define truth, reality by our feelings. How does this make me feel? What do I feel about this? And so even when it comes to guilt, the term guilt, we've turned it into a feeling. I feel guilty, right? Or I don't feel guilty. When that felon, stands before a judge in a human court of law, perhaps a murderer, let's say, and the evidence has been brought, the jury has come back with its sentence after just five minutes deliberation, it's obvious, they bring the sentence, the judge reads it out, the verdict is guilty. The judge does not stop first and look at the felon, the murderer, do you feel guilty? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's inconsequential what he feels. The judge, what does he do? He proclaims sentence, guilty. Whether or not the felon feels guilty, feels remorse, is completely out of the question, irrelevant, has nothing to do with the issue. Why? Because guilt is a condition. These verses show us just how guilty we are. You might very well be sitting there. I don't feel very guilty. I I don't don't feel it. Don't have any regrets at all. No tinge of remorse. No tinge of guilt. Let me say to you very simply two things. One, you have completely misunderstood your condition before God and the depth of your own sin. And let me say to you secondly, whether you feel it or not is irrelevant. God has already passed sentence. You are guilty. 
and your mouth will be stopped. It will be plugged. It will be silenced on that day of judgment. The third lesson is this. It shows us just how lost we are. Verse 11, last sentence. No one seeks for God. Shows us just how lost we are. We cannot come to Christ unless God draws us. John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We cannot see the kingdom of God unless God causes us to be born again. John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We can't even understand God unless God gives us eyes to see. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, stupidity to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Oh, we see just how lost we are and dependent we are upon God's sovereign grace. The fourth lesson is this. It shows us just how desperate we are. Tenth verse. I mean the whole passage, but the tenth verse again. None is righteous. No, not one. That shows us just how desperate we are. Oh, enhancing health care. Okay, fine. Funding space exploration. It's exciting, fine. Developing solar power. Reducing extreme poverty. I'm all for it. Don't misunderstand me. Expanding educational training. Reducing infectious diseases. Building better hospitals. Eradicating terrorism networks. Providing economic opportunities, combating climate change, overcoming entrenched racism, supporting fledgling democracies, and I could go on and on and on and on and go. Don't misunderstand me. All, to some extent, there is some merit to all those things. But my friend, none of them represent your greatest need. None of them represent our most pressing need. What is it we need? I do not need self-help recipes. I don't need a shot in the arm. I don't need moral psychology. I don't need 10-step how-to seminars. I certainly don't need to get in touch with my inner self. I need to get right with God. These verses show us just how desperate we are and exactly what it is we need. We must get right with God. The fifth lesson is this. The text shows us just how gracious God is. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. No one fears God. It all means what? That apart from God's sovereign grace, no one would be saved. Uh, I referred to it yesterday in the seminar, the golden chain of salvation. Those of you who were here, I was giving a talk on William Perkins and his understanding of the golden chain of salvation as revealed in Romans chapter 8, God's predestination, active, God's effectual calling, God's justification, God's sanctification, God's glorification of sinners, all rooted in his Sovereign grace. We sometimes sing it here. The words are sweet. Let me just quote one stanza. My Lord, I did not choose you. For that could never be. 
my heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. This text shows me, oh, it impresses on me, it pounds into me just how gracious God is. And here's the sixth and final truth lesson. This text shows us just how wonderful Christ is. The just shall live by faith. Faith in whom? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses remind me just how wonderful Christ is. I gave the illustration last week. Let me repeat it right now. It has brought me great encouragement every day this past week as I just reflected upon it. I think I called her Susie. Little Susie, four years of age at the fair. And there is little Susie at the fair playing some games, and one game in particular catches her attention. In the middle of this game, there is this big, cuddly teddy bear, and she wants, she craves this teddy bear, pays her dollar, three rings. The goal is she must throw the three rings over the teddy bear. She can't throw anything. Just kind of pushes the things off the bench in front of her. She's not winning. Her big brother is standing behind her. And her big brother slaps down his dollar. He picks up those rings with hardly even rings with hardly even looking. One, two, three, all over the bear. The guy hands the big bear, big cuddly bear, to the brother. It's now the brother's. The brother hands it to his little sister. It is now his sister's. His sister did nothing to earn it. We have a big brother. We have the Son of God who became man took to himself our flesh, body, and soul, walked among men, fulfilled the law, what we could never... I mean, look at that description of us in those verses. Look at how dark it is, how depressing, how discouraging. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none righteous. No one does anything good. No one's looking for God. No one's seeking God. There is not an ounce, not an iota of fear before their eyes. But we have a big brother. We have a big brother who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have a big brother who did what we could never have done if given eternity to do it. We have a big brother who fulfilled the law, fulfilled all righteousness, loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have a big brother who has stepped into the gap upon Calvary's cross and bore the wrath of God in full. The just shall live by faith. Oh, these verses show me just how wonderful Christ is. You believe that, friend? You young ones, you are old enough to understand that. You are old enough to grasp that intellectually. Oh, grasp it with your heart and rest upon the Lord Jesus. You older ones, I'm preaching to the choir, right? All converted, all saved. Oh, celebrate it. But to that one or two who perhaps still find themselves outside the Lord Jesus Christ, where are you going to turn? Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? There is only one name given under heaven by which man must be saved. And it is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Father. We do indeed praise you for your word, its clarity, its simplicity. And above all else, what it reveals concerning you, your Son, the way of salvation, the way of holiness, and that great hope which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray now for your blessing 
upon all that has been proclaimed. We ask that you might take it. Be well pleased to work deep within our hearts. And especially our Father, we beseech you. We cry out to you on behalf of that unbeliever here in our very presence, in your presence, who has heard this very day your command to repent and believe. And ask now that by the Holy Spirit, you would give him eyes to see. We seek it from you in Christ's most precious and worthy name. Amen.